After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Before we get to today's show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Soccer Zone Indoor. Soccer Zone Indoor is the newest place to host your soccer games. You can host pickup games on one of their three pitches with top artificial turf. You can host parties in one of their three party areas. Sign up for coaching and training as well. Centrally located on the corner of Miramar Parkway and Flamingo Road, they have terrific amenities at Soccer Zone Indoor. 20,000 square foot facility with wall-to-wall AC, so you're not going to be sweating. It's not going to be an unbearable experience to play your soccer there flat screen tvs and projectors to watch games as well they've got soccer on the televisions 24 7 you call 954-450-6010 again that's 954-450-6010 you can follow them on social media at soccer zone indoor that is facebook instagram and snapchat tell them five reasons send you and get 15 percent off registration again that's soccer zone indoor phone number 954-450-6010 for soccer zone indoor and now on with the show Welcome into another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham. Ethan Skolnick not with us for this episode because this is a soccer special. The World Cup starts in three days' time at time of posting. It doesn't get started with the best of matches, that being Russia against Saudi Arabia, but still a ton to get through in this World Cup favorites Brazil, favorites Germany, favorites Spain, and tons of other great teams to watch that are going to be on offer at this World Cup. And we've been covering it a ton on the Pitch Invasion podcast, which is also in the Five Reasons Sports Network. You subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Also on Twitter, at Pitch Invasion 5R. That is where I will be tweeting my soccer thoughts during the World Cup. We're very excited to have this event coming up here. And we're going to cover in this episode a lot of what we covered in Pitch Invasion, which is basically sorting the World Cup into the five different continents that send teams to the World Cup. Obviously, the European teams are the biggest favorites given the strength and quality of that continent, but South America certainly of interest with South America. Once we get into our interviews with guests, we have four different sets of guests in this episode, so really excited to bring those to you. Lots of great chat about the teams at the World Cup. Messi, Ronaldo will certainly be covered in this episode, but if we are going to talk about the five continents going to the World Cup, we should probably start with the one that this podcast is based in, that being North America. And if we're talking about the biggest storyline related to North America, it is no doubt the fact that the United States will not be sending a team to the World Cup. They were the plucky underdog that didn't make the World Cup, that made life miserable on the French on Saturday night when they drew 1-1 with a team that I think a lot of people are expecting to potentially win the World Cup. So the United States are kind of back to their status as plucky underdogs, but that represents a significant step back for this country that has not just gone to World Cups, but has done well. Best finish was a quarterfinal in the round of 16 twice. You look at teams like Spain that couldn't get out of the group in 2014. Italy, their last three World Cups, now including this one, will have been failed to qualify and out at the group stage twice. These are incredible footballing sides, and yet the United States 
has done better than them at times at major tournaments. So the fact that the United States isn't in it is such a huge step back, especially when you consider that some of the teams that had a chance to go or qualified in Panama, who went and qualified automatically, Honduras, who was knocked out in the playoff against Australia, you actually hear about later. But the fact that the United States could not be better than those teams is really, frankly, pathetic. And I think it represents a failure on a multitude of levels. A lot of them have been covered since they lost to Trinidad and Tobago away from home on that day. But to me, if we're just going to kind of start on the United States, to me, it is the fact that we kind of lost who we were as a soccer country. And so you look at what the United States did against France. They played five defenders and a bunch of central midfielders who was, whose job it was was to run around and make life miserable on the French, and they did. The United States were miserable to play against in that game against France, and the idea that we couldn't do that to Trinidad and Tobago, that they just carved us open for two goals and knocked us out of the tournament, it was shocking. And so the fact that the United States isn't in it is a failure on a multitude of levels. It starts with the governing body. It continues with the management, whether it was Jurgen Klinsmann or Bruce Arena, both having giant failures over the course of World Cup qualifying, and it really is a state of doldrums in the program, and it's why I think fans are really excited to see their players that are under 25. I don't think this is an overall endemic issue in U.S. soccer. I think we're getting a lot better, but I think the one thing that we have to acknowledge is, number one, we're not as good as the rest of the world. We cannot act like we're as good as the rest of the world. That's number one. Number two is that the steps that are being taken to improve the game in this country are going to take generations to to actually take effect. We're not going to be creating world-class players when our academy systems are 10 years old. The academies have to grow. But number three, I think you have to realize that there is not going to be a savior coach, a savior manager, a savior player. This is a much bigger issue, right? This is finding a system that works for the United States. This is figuring out ways to churn players like Germany does, where you look at the guys that aren't even going for Germany, and they're so far and away better than the Americans. Like, what the Americans have is not a problem of management or tactics or and certainly those things were a problem in the qualifying cycle and those things should be good enough to beat Panama and Trinidad and Tobago but we just don't churn out the quality of talent that the world does and I saw a stat before the France game you look at the transfer fees paid for the French players versus the American players it was like 450 million paid for the French players and like eight for the U.S. we just don't produce players who are as good understand that and recognize that our identity is as plucky underdogs. And to me, it is kind of what makes the United States fun to watch on the international level. Because I think Americans believe that we have a divine right to be great at every sport, and the only way we can get behind a team is if they're great. I think it's actually what makes supporting U.S. men's soccer unique. We are the underdogs of the world on the world stage because we're so far behind on playing the world sport. And we have so much room to catch up on and so many things that we have to do in order to catch up to the rest of the world that I think this journey is going to be an interesting one. And look, England missed World Cup 1994. They've missed missed a World Cup in the 70s too. Like It's not totally unprecedented for a team who is meant to only have an upward trajectory to miss the World Cup. And I'm a very least... This is sort of will lead us into the chat about the other teams of the World Cup. I'm excited about the fact that the sport has grown enough in this country 
that I don't think the U.S. missing out means that this is an irrelevant sporting event. Now, part of that is the calendar, right? The NBA season just ended. The NHL season just ended. We really only have baseball games being played right now, so it's kind of a perfect fit into the calendar. But also, I just think there are enough people who are interested in this sport in this country that it's not totally reliant on the U.S. being at the World Cup to go and watch Portugal and Spain on the first Friday of the World Cup, to watch some Germany-Mexico, I believe, is on opening weekend. There are some incredible games that I think the United States is going to get excited about because it's a great sporting competition. It is a great thing to go and watch on television. So I think soccer in this country is at a point to survive the U.S. being out, but the U.S. being out requires that we ask questions about the system, about talent development, and are we getting better at a rate that's quick enough? And the fact that we've actually taken a step back by virtue of missing out to Honduras and Panama and getting eliminated by Trinidad and Tobago, a lot of the things we talk about as being bigger ideas shouldn't matter in the context of beating those teams. Costa Rica beat us home and away. Mexico, we only took one point off them. The fact that we're not at this World Cup is because we've taken a step back. And so I do think that the United States missing this tournament is a massive deal in terms of where we are as a program, but I don't think that means we throw everything out and and say that just this is a broken system that needs to be torn completely down. I don't think it is that drastic. I think you see a lot of the progress of the development of players in this country, and it's at least going in a decent direction, if not taking a step back in this last qualifying cycle. But without further ado, let's move on to the teams that are going to the World Cup, and let's start with Argentina. No doubt the biggest narrative going into the World Cup is can Lionel Messi finally win a major trophy for Argentina? Came up short at the last World Cup, came up short in the last two Copa Americas. Can he finally lead this team to go and win the World Cup? But it's going to be a mountain to climb, given that his team's not the greatest. We got into that and more with South American football expert Juan Arango. Argentina, they have the second best odds to win the World Cup of the South American sides. Obviously, we can only really start in one place, and that is Lionel Messi. They've gone to consecutive Copa America finals. They went to the World Cup final in 2014 and have lost all of them. Do you think that the squads that lost those major tournaments, this team is better or worse than the team that lost Copa Centenario, that lost Copa America 2015 and lost the 2014 World Cup? All those teams had one factor that really made them just as good as this one. It's Messi. Yeah. I mean, it begins and ends with him. The question will be, how will his teammates play around him? And Chris, you've seen that picture many have. The most iconic pictures of that Copa Centenario in 2016 was Lionel Messi dribbling by himself alongside nine Chilean players surrounding him. That was yeah. probably one of the most telling and most memorable pictures or images that will remain in, in people's collective minds. And it was Dario Benedetto that, that said something very interesting. He's like, when I was on the national team, my mentality was not to look at Lionel Messi as the best player in the world. My mentality, my mindset coming into those training camps was to look at Leo as one of my teammates. Because the tendency when you have the best player in the world is to look at him and say, okay, here's the ball, do something with it. And to an extent, he's right. When things went bad, when things weren't going right for Argentina, the first thing that his teammates said, okay, Leo, go do your thing. And they just ball watch. You'd see a lot of video and you start trying to break Argentina down. And a lot of times it was messy moving and everyone else staying still. That, to me, is the biggest problem with Argentina. That's always been the biggest problem with Argentina. He has to defend. He has to attack. He has to pass. He has to distribute. He has to make that final pass. He has to run and be able to score at the same time. It all ends up being around Messi. And and what people have been upset about, as far as certain non-call-ups, Mauricardi being one of them, 
is that some of these players, in order for them to flourish on a team, they need to be provided too. And when you have Messi on your squad, you're not going to be the first or even the second sometimes priority as far as scoring is concerned. And that is, to me, the biggest thing is if you look at that squad, the fact that Icardi isn't in it is, to me, an indication of how many quality attacking players that they have that they don't even need Mauro Icardi, who would be the number nine for, what, like 25 of the teams at this World Cup? Like, it's incredible that, that, that they don't even have use for him. And that, for me, is the biggest problem with Argentina, for me, is the imbalance, right? So Jorge Sampaoli comes in as a new manager, and it, it, he switches to a three at the back. And for me, you're only adding positions on the field by going to that system where you don't have world-class players. Like, to me, Nicolas Otamendi is the closest thing they have to a world-class center back, and I don't believe he's, he's close at the moment. Once you get past him, you're not exactly dealing with the best of the best at center back. Then, the, to me, they don't have that many great fullbacks, and then you're asking them to play wing back, and at times they've you know, asked like Angel Di Maria to play wing back, and that's certainly not his position. And so I feel like the biggest problem with Argentina is they have, they have all the forwards in the world, but they don't seem to have very much balance as a team. Oh, no, absolutely not. And they haven't had much balance as a team going back to 2010, if you really want to go there. Even when, when 2008, when, when Coco Basile was the coach of, of Argentina. What the problem is there, the back line of three, it was that match against Bosnia and Herzegovina in, in the last World Cup. And it was an absolute disaster. And so much so that Alejandro Sabella decided, you know, let's just... Let's just drop this whole idea of playing with, with a back line of three and let's play with what God is here, 4-3-3. Now, if you start looking at Sampaoli, he's decided to adapt a little bit more and do more of a 4-2-2-2, which now he's talking about doing a 2-3-3-2, you know, a bit <laughs> more. So, I mean, ends up being one of these old phone number types of things. So instead of, instead of having five in the back, now you have two in the back, and which ends up being four if you end up putting the, the players that are playing out wide, dropping back and playing as a pseudo, if you will, fullback position. So to me, that ends up being the biggest issue with Argentina, that you have one stable aspect of your team, which is Leo Messi, and maybe a couple of players here and there as the nucleus. But everything around the supporting cast, and even at the administrative level, there's been little to no stability. And that really has been the thing that every time something goes wrong, you always tend to go and tug at the thing that's been most stable. In this case, in Argentina, it's always been Messi or that nucleus of maybe four or five players. Let's get back to the Messi problem because I do think that they have an issue with that over-reliance on him. Why do you think that it's so much different at club level versus national team level? Now, at club level, it has started to become a little bit of an over-dependence on Messi, particularly for the creative brilliance where I think Valverde has built more sort of a, a, a solidity in the team as opposed to the way that they played under Guardiola. But for the national team, it is Messi or bust. And yet, I look at that squad like Higuain and Di Maria, like they have some pretty fantastic players in their own right that are really good for their clubs. And yet, like you mentioned earlier with the other example, that they don't end up feeling like like their colleagues or peers with Messi because they clearly just rely on him to like they did to get to the World Cup. They needed to win that final game and it was Messi who summoned all the magic. Like they just turned to him whenever there's any hint of a crisis. And the greatest crisis they had was that match in, in Guayaquil where they played Ecuador and Messi had to come and rescue him with a hat trick to be able to qualify for the World Cup. One of the best quotes that has ever come out of Argentine media in the past six months, if you will, was a description of Gonzalo Higuain. And it was when Higuain is playing for Juventus, he was unafraid to go and score. When he plays for Argentina, he's afraid to become a meme. <laughs> and he, he certainly does get talked about like that because, you know, Brutally. all the times he's missed in finals. Brutally. Since November, every newscast Every talk show 
has talked about Argentina's 23-man roster for the World Cup since November. Wow. I mean, we, we, we get we get worn out with political campaigns. <laughs> imagine imagine having to hear that over and over and over and over again. Oh, you're on the World Cup team. Oh, you're not on the World Cup team. Oh, you're going to be on the 35-man list. You're going to be on the 23-man list. Now, you look at another aspect of Argentina compared to Barcelona. Barcelona already has an identity. They already have a style of play that's already been ingrained in Messi and many of the other players that have been at La Masia since the time they're 11, 10, 5, whatever age they come into La Masia to start playing. Since 2008, Argentina has now had nine coaches, each wow. one with a different formation, each one with a different football idea, each one with a different way to play Lionel Messi, each one with a different teammate to accompany Leo Messi to create opportunities for him or for him to create opportunities for them. As a player, you become your head starts spinning. And from the logistical end, there, there's not a lot of – I mean, even yesterday, Argentina has an open practice. And, uh, you know, 20, 25,000 fans, something like that, going in the full house at, at the stadium over at Huracan. There's media that are that are saying Lionel Messi decided to shun the entire stadium and just walk off. When you start seeing people taking pictures, you know, him taking pictures of little kids, selfies and stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of interest as well. So, I mean, there are, when you talk Argentina, I mean, you could make about a five or six podcast episode, you know, <laughs> worth six episodes to talk about the problems that are going on within Argentine football that you can really start to say, damn, I mean, it's that bad. And yes, it's that bad. And that's something messy, even in the Copa America, when he decided to kind of boycott the press, if you will. Because they were they were making accusations that Ezequiel Avezi was smoking weed. Jeez. So I mean, they, 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 <laughs> good God. So, so I mean, they, and he had to come out and say no, that's not true. You know, and Lavezzi ended up suing the, the the journalist that made that report. So I mean, you have a lot of things attacking the national team. I mean, if you start looking at at the presidential candidacy, you know, you had seventy five people voting, and then the election comes out thirty eight thirty eight. So. I, just that alone. Yeah, I mean, you it's start just, seeing yeah, it's, the, everything I've read about that organization is that it's just so poorly managed. I mean, I mean, poorly would be a start. Poorly would be good. <laughs> it, it's just, it's right. just that there's a lot of interest and, and there's a lot of people that, that handle it in a very archaic way. All right, so two more before we move on. Uh, the first is you look at the qualifying run. They only scored 19 goals from 18 games. A team with Lionel Messi and Gonzalo Higuain should be scoring more than 19 goals from 18. Now, in terms of their defense, Defensive record, it was second best in Coleman Bowl, but in terms of their scoring record, is tied for seventh. It was behind nations like Peru, like Chile, like Ecuador. In terms of getting that that attack going, what what for you would be your diagnosis for how they can solve it? First of all, for them to be able to break lines, for them to be able to break down their opposition. This, to me, Argentina's group is probably on paper the toughest group in the, in the World Cup. I they're, agree. They're, yeah, there really wasn't a group of death, but if, if you want to slap that tag on, on a group, you could probably go with this one. And you have a team in Croatia that likes to possess the ball a lot, that really can handle and, and pull the strings wherever they want in the midfield. You have a team in Nigeria that matches very well against you. And then you have a team in Iceland that defensively, they can become very solid and cause a lot of problems. Now, you have to find three different avenues, three different ways to solve three different problems. And does Argentina have the wherewithal to do it? And in the end, when things go wrong, when things go bad, you always got messy. And and, 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 and we're guilty of it, too. I mean, as journalists, because when Argentina loses 6-1 to Spain, we said, yeah, you know, but that, that result doesn't matter. Messi wasn't playing. Messi's not even a bandage anymore. He's what you cauterize an injury with. Or <laughs> something like I mean, he is. He is that, you know, the scar will be there, but Messi kind of patches that up but what if Messi's not in form 
that's the biggest question. Who steps up after that? All right. So what would your expectation be for this Argentina side? Argentina should get out of the group stage. It won't be easy. Now, they do not want to end up in second place because that would cross them over with France. The possibility would be to win the group and be able to face either Denmark or even Peru, for that matter. We'll talk about Peru in a little bit. But uh, Argentina doesn't have easy at all. If, if they're able to get out of the group stage and they're able to get out of quarterfinals, watch out. That could be that could be Messi's moment. Now, I'm going to make a hot take, bold prediction. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Argentina go out in the group stage. I think I think that's been, that's been I, I, I think about. I think Croatia and, and Nigeria go through. I talked to um, Gary Al Smith, who covers African football. I think that Nigeria side, you just look at it on paper, the way they played in qualifying. I think it's a good side. I think the dysfunction in Argentina, the poor feeling that that Messi has playing for his national team and the fact that they just were not a good side in qualifying. I think there's a real chance that they go out the group stage. Nigeria is not just a good team. They're an excellent team. Mm-hmm. I mean, what they were able to do and, and, and Gary's totally right as far as this Nigeria side in World Cup qualifying play, I think this was one of the best runs that they had. And many have been talking about this team as it being one of the potential contenders and become that African team that causes a lot a lot of noise. And I wouldn't be one bit surprised. I, I Actually, I think Nigeria is going to advance out of this group. The biggest problem with Croatia is that they're really not a cohesive team. They had to come out of a playoff and they were beaten by Iceland in their group before they come out. Before we continue with our World Cup preview, let's hear a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, it's Ethan Skolnick. You know, my daughter, who will be four next month, has grown up in a bilingual household, so she's fluent in English and Spanish. But we wanted to expose her to a third language while she's young because it's easier for kids to learn than it is for adults. So in January, she started taking Mandarin at Burlitz Broward for kids and teens in Pembroke Pines, and she absolutely loves it. They offer age-appropriate private and group classes in nearly a dozen languages, and they teach at the students' pace while making it fun. Their native fluent instructors are specially trained in the Burlitz conversational method. Sasha now counts to 50, knows the colors and fruits and animals, and she even sings Moana songs in Mandarin in the car. Burlitz Broward is open Monday to Saturday and can be reached at 954-997-9977. That's 954-997-9977. And also found at BurlitzBroward.com. Say the five reasons sent you and you get 25% off registration. Again, that's BurlitzBroward.com. Now let's move on to Europe. We mentioned in the open how tasty the second day of the World Cup looks with Portugal and Spain headlining the matchups. They're in the same group. We talked about them together in our European preview with BN Sports' Kevin Egan and Eric Krakauer. Take a listen. You consider that Atletico Madrid won the Europa, Real Madrid won the Champions League, Barcelona won a domestic double. That's the majority of this Spanish squad right now. Then you take youth like Alvaro, Alvaro Odriozola, who I think is a marvellous fullback. I think he's destined for greatness. That Scored game. this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I think he's top class for El Sociedad week in, week out. David De Gea from Manchester United. There's something special about this Spain squad. And I think they're going to win it. And I think they're going to cap off a dominant season for Spanish football. You, you think they're going to win the World Cup? Yes. Okay. I, I'm not so sure that... If Diego Costa doesn't click, it's a major problem. I think this is a team that has so much talent that Lopetegui can pretty much adjust the tactics to whatever players he has on the pitch. There's a lot that you can do with this team. And just based on the amount of talent that you have in the midfield, they'll create so many opportunities throughout 90 minutes that... Whether you have a nine or not, I think it becomes irrelevant. For me, there's two positions free in the Spain squad. 
against a big team. Now, obviously, Andres Iniesta may be rested for one or two games. Uh, you would think uh, in their group, they obviously have they have Portugal, Iran, and Morocco, correct? Yep. You're going to go with the hair. You're going to go with the two Real Madrid guys on one side, Sergio Ramos, Carvajal, two Barcelona guys on the other side, and PK and Alba. Busquets will absolutely start every game, you would think. Then you have Iniesta and you have David Silva. Isco. So then he's going to play Costa, you would think. So that's one player I'm, I'm not totally sure on. And then the other position, who starts? That's a good question. I'm- I think Asensio. Asensio is a, is a guy off the bench, I think. That's from, from what I can tell. The thing, though, that you're describing about Isco, and it's like, to me, these are central players. Yeah, right? but, but, but Spain, the way they play, it'll rotate. David Silva will go wide, right. Isco will come inside, and it'll be constant rotation. See, my biggest question for the Spanish team is, who's the first person off the bench? I think Asensio. Yeah, Asensio could be that guy. It could be... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Aul, as well. Mm -hmm. Because I think what you're going to see is Busquets, Tiago Alcantara, Iniesta, and David Silva in the midfield. Those are, are your starters, I think. Yeah. And then with, with Diego Costa up are you, top. Are you, are you guys concerned all about Iniesta? Given, given his age and given no, that he's, he's only he's, 32. He's, he's off in Barcelona. No, he's, 30, he's and I, I don't know if you guys saw 34. the game against Switzerland this weekend, but it was like the Spanish were having a game of Rondo yeah. with the Swiss. <laughs> How that ended up being 1-1 yeah. is beyond me. And there were, there were plenty of opportunities, even without Diego Costa on the pitch. I think they'll destroy Morocco and Iran. I know you disagree with me. I, think I disagree. Yeah. I think they'll destroy him, and I, I, I think Iniesta will get an opportunity to rest in, in those games. In, in some respects, though, 
winning the group, winning this group. You know what? We're, we're going to go a bit out of order because I know Eric. This is certainly a, an interesting point for you because you are Portuguese. But Portugal, twenty-eight to one to win the World Cup. I think winning and losing or winning and finishing. And we, we all agree it's going to be Spain and Portugal top two in this group, right? I I actually don't know that for sure. Really? You th- so you think Morocco has a chance to I think Morocco is, is a very good team. And they didn't concede a single goal in qualifying, mm-hmm. which had the Ivory Coast um, in there, which is arguably the most uh, the team with the most talent on its roster. Uh, they've got a plethora of talented midfielders. They've got a good defensive unit led by Mehdi Benatia, who yep. this season will be remembered for the penalty he conceded against Real Madrid, but had a stellar season for Juve. Arguably the best Rugani, defender in Serie A. This yeah, season. keeping Rugani on the bench. And, and, and replacing Bonucci to, well. Yeah, and this right. was supposed to be Rugani's year for Juve. So this is a team that has a lot of talent in that first 11. The question is depth for Morocco. So I don't think that it's, it's a no-brainer that Portugal and Spain go through. Okay, but they play on the first game too, which is fascinating. Yeah, but I do think that the winner of this group is going to be in a better position because they're going to have to play, for me, one less tougher game. So if you look at the bracket, uh, so Spain, I, I, I did a bracket thing, and Spain winning the group, they'll face the runner-up in Group A. Yeah. And that right now is either Russia. E- e- Egypt or Russia, it's right? Russia. It's Russia. You think so? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're just, you're, you believe Putin will find a way. But then the runner-up in this group will face the winner of Group A, which for me is going to be Uruguay. And then in the quarter... It, the favorite right now, we'll get to France in a moment, but like the the path could be to the final. Uruguay, France, and Brazil, potentially, for the runner-up in this group. So I do think that as much as Spain can win the World Cup, if they don't win their group, yeah, that's a that's a lot of difficult games to so, win consecutively. So, so, so what if they win it? What's the path? So if they win it, so again, it's, it's Egypt, uh, and then the favorite to get to the quarterfinal would be Argentina, right? So they could play Argentina in the quarters, and then probably Germany in the semis, and yeah, then I mean it's going to be tough fight or what? Sure, but but it's one less game, right? If you're playing Egypt, yeah. the runner-up at a Group A, then you feel yeah. like you're at, you're at the very least in the quarterfinal, with without too much of a sweat. Eric makes some great points though about not underestimating Morocco and, and Iran. You know, think about Iran at the last World Cup, Messi in the 93rd minute, having to score a late winner to to beat the Iranians. Nothing will be that straightforward, but I certainly think Portugal, and I, cover, I had the pleasure of covering the game with Eric against Tunisia recently, they've got, they're not going to blow anyone away. I think we know that about Portugal It's now. why I think I'm underrating them. They won the European Championship, but I wasn't convinced, even, yeah. winning, the, even winning the tournament. And a lot of people who don't follow the Portuguese players, the two names they think of straight away are Pepe and Ronaldo, who are 34 and 33 respectively. So that's too easy to judge Portugal and say they're not mm-hmm. going to be good enough. When you look at what Gonzalo Guedes has done this season, he, for me, is a standout star. Top, top class. And he might not get many minutes in Correct. this World Cup. You've got Bruno Fernandes, who, who, who you, you really rate. I think he could be the standout R- player. Run, run through some ch- of the players that you think are going to be standouts at the World Cup. Well, look, let's, let's deal with, the, with two of the dominant storylines with Portugal since the Euro, right? People complained that they only won one game in 90 minutes, and that was against Wales, where they were dominant, apart from a few chances that Gareth Bale created. Everything else went either to overtime, overtime, extra time, or to penalties. So 
there's a sense that they lucked out. And they did when you look at what happened in the group stages because this was the first tournament with 24 teams in the Euro and they went through as, as the third team. Of course, nobody talks about Italy in 2006. They came in third place too in their group and they ended up winning, winning everything. So the one thing that you have to take from that performance in Euro 2016 about Portugal is that under Fernando Santos, they created a defensive structure that they hadn't had in a very long time. And that is crucial in a tournament. But but I think, Eric, the reason why people don't rate Portugal is because we're more attracted to Spain and to France and to Germany because they can pick teams apart and put four and five past Which leads me to to the second sort of storyline that people tend to judge Portugal on, which is Ronaldo and a supporting cast. And I think that to call the remaining 22 players on this team a supporting cast is really derogatory because there's so much talent. I mean, you look at Bernardo Silva. Was he a, a sure starter for Man City? No. But was he an important player? Absolutely. Does he have an incredible amount of talent? Yes. Was he perhaps the second most important player for Monaco when they won Liga yeah. a season and a half ago, two, two seasons ago? Absolutely. Keep asking yourself questions. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> am, I, am I ridiculously handsome? Yes, I am. <laughs> and then you look, you, look at the, you look at the starting 11. William Carvalho is... A beast. Is a, is a beast. The only knock on him is that he's a little bit slow moving, but technically very gifted. So you, you have a lot of talent there. João Mario didn't work out at Inter, but did well for West Ham. And I think a lot of people are going to try and poach him from West Ham after this World Cup. And he was impressive in that game against Tunisia mm-hmm. that we called Kevin. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there is a, a fluidity to this Portuguese national team that is very impressive. And I think that to, to in any way discount them, because it's Cristiano Ronaldo and the rest, is doing this team a disservice. Are they at the level of a Brazil, Spain, and Germany? No. They're not. You're right. But what I will say about Portugal to give them credit is you go through port- the Portugal squad, especially in midfield and up front, the depth is incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Listen to Manuel Fernandes, uh, João Moutinho, João Mario, William Carvalho, Bruno Fernandes, who, who Eric is really, really high on. Up front, Cristiano Ronaldo, Andre Silva, who I predict is going to have a major World Cup, Bernardo Silva, Gonzalo Guedes, Jelson Martins, who you were saying earlier is lightning fast. Yep. And R- Ricardo Quaresma is still there. There's experience. There's a blend of youth and veteranship. And I'm not going to discount anything that Fernando Santos does because he's just a tournament-tested manager. All right, so if you were to pick it right now, who wins that group and who finishes runner-up? Spain wins that group. Spain wins the group. Yeah. All right, so they would probably be playing Uruguay in the round of 16. I, I, we, we talked about in the South oh, American preview. I love Uruguay. That's a bloodbath. Moving on now to Africa. Africa with another of the world's great players that really burst onto the scene in this club season, and that was Mo Salah. Now, a fair warning, we did not know that Mo Salah was going to be injured in the Champions League. We taped this before the Champions League final, and so we do talk about Mo Salah. Now, the good news is, is that Mohamed Salah of Egypt is going to be healthy, we think, to at least get some minutes in the first couple of games and maybe start by the third game of the group for Egypt to play in Group A. But if it still sounds funny that we're talking about Mo Salah as if he's going to be there for the whole tournament, we did not know that Mo Salah was injured when we taped this with Gary Al Smith, who is an African football expert based in Ghana. We also did know that Ghana, from a footballing perspective, would totally disintegrate in the wake of a massive scandal. But we got into... Egypt, and Nigeria as well, who look a decent side out of African qualifying. Here's a bit of Africa chat. His game is very well known. Analytically, there are so many tools to measure his performance. 
there's a lot of ways to be able to track the way he plays. And so essentially he's an open commodity. I mean, any of the teams they are going to be facing in the group stages simply has to go on to YouTube or use any of their sophisticated scouting tools to know exactly what to do to stop Mo Salah. More than any of the star players among the African teams, I think that Mo Salah would really, really, really need the support of his team to play at even half of his level to be fine and to get out of that group and to have an impact at the World Cup, I think. And tell us about some of his teammates then in terms of who are going to be some of these players that are going to have to be relied upon in order to to get Egypt further than just having Mo Salah do it himself. Well, Ramadan Sobi of Stoke will be one of them. There's also, they've got a guy called uh, Mahmoud Trezeguet, very good. And then they've also got uh, Mahmoud Karaba. His nickname is Electricity. He's a very good player as well. And uh, these are some of the guys we should be looking out for. Mohamed El Neni, of course, a known quantity with Arsenal, and on his day can be very good in a defensive midfield. And then they have another Premier League quantity in Hegazi, who plays for West Brom. Defensively, he should be able to marshal the side as well in terms of having the requisite international experience now. But some of the other local players that you may not know will be key as well. And in fact, they'll need to put in a decent shift to be functional players, and that will be key for Egypt. Egypt is, is going into a group with Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Uruguay. I would expect Uruguay yeah. to go through, so it really is going to be competing with Russia and Saudi Arabia to get out of the group. Yeah. Do you think that they do, and how far do you think they can go? Because even if they do get out of the group, I imagine they'll play either Portugal or Spain in the round of 16 paired up with Group B. So what is a realistic expectation for Egypt? Well, I think that in Egypt, a realistic expectation, and I spoke to a lot of Egyptian journalists before coming to this conclusion, is that round of 16, and it'll be okay. All right, so let's move to the next country we wanted to preview, Nigeria. They qualify out of Group B in a fairly dominant fashion and ahead of Zambia, Cameroon, and Algeria. Ahead of this World Cup, I mean, you look at, just sort of looking at the squad, it seems like there's a little bit of an imbalance because they have so many quality attacking players, but don't have quite the same balance that they've had in previous years. John Obi Mikel is still playing in midfield. What would you say is is the biggest talking point, the biggest storyline for Nigeria ahead of the World Cup? They recently played a couple of days ago against Atletico Madrid, you know, a Nigerian team against Atleti. The score finished three goals to two to Atleti, but Nigeria were fantastic. Let's just put it that way. I mean, they were, they were amazing. They just continued in the vein that we saw when they beat Argentina recently. The vibe around the camp is great, but I think that if there will be a team where the coach will, will make the difference, it is this one. Gernot Raw is a, I won't say he's a father figure. He's just a guy who knows when not to poke his nose into affairs that don't concern him. A lot of coaches like to be inside every nitty gritty of the team as they are prepared for a major tournament. No, he doesn't do that. I mean, the politics that involves Nigeria, you know, Nigeria is a huge nation. So much money sloshing around, so many political interests and all that, he really doesn't care. So long as it does not affect his performance. They are camping in Uyo in the south of the country at the moment, and the vibes coming from there is that there's a really, really unified atmosphere in the team, and that is because of this coach. I mean, he's one of the most experienced coaches in Africa, having enjoyed stints with uh, Gabon, Niger, and Burkina Faso, you know. And um, yeah, that's it. I mean, Victor Moses is the star. Some will also say that John Obi Mikel is the star. But what this does, Chris, is that it gives them focal points and it gives the opposition a bit more difficulty because you're not sure exactly who the team will be built around. And considering that they have such a good chemistry about them at the moment, 
they'll be slippery. I mean, it will be terms to come to life when he's in a Nigerian shirt. He actually plays better when playing for Nigeria than for Arsenal for some strange reason. And that can only be good. Kelechi Hianacho, he's also a beast anytime he wears a Nigerian jersey. And he always makes it difficult for Leicester because anytime he comes away from international duty, he does so well. And they are forced to put him in the team. And he gives off his best as well. They've got Ikechuku Ezenwa, the goalkeeper, who will likely to be taxed with keeping players like Leo Messi, Sergio Aguero and Gonzalo Higuain at bay when they meet on the 26th of June as well. So, yeah, that's the deal on them. And before you ask me, <laughs> they play Croatia first, they play Iceland second and Argentina. All they need is a 120% performance against Croatia to nick a win and it can go anywhere from there. And that, for me, is the interesting thing about this group is that, so obviously Argentina are favorites to go through. I think this Nigeria side, based off of what you're telling me and based off the way that they qualified, can give a reasonable account of themselves and, and, and feel fairly confident that they can finish second in the group or maybe even top it and go through. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, and a lot of Nigerians don't believe it, even though I'm not Nigerian. <laughs> I think that if they win against Croatia, Chris, I mean, against Iceland, Look, it's going to be hell in a cell, to borrow a phrase from wrestling. You look at the squad, you have Moses, Ahmed Musa, Odia Nigalo, Iwobi, and Ianacho as guys that are kind of more of the attacking. Who do you think doesn't play out of that kind of group of five players that is going to maybe have to come off the bench to make their impact? You know what? I think that this will be the classic case of Gennot Roll looking who is in form a few days before the game, as simple as that. Because all of them have had, you know, interesting seasons. When they go to camp, what he's going to see is what he's going to do. And depending on the team news that is going to come out of Croatia, who is the most likely to start for Croatia? You know, so right now we can name our starting 11, but all I'm saying is that it is even possible that the starting 11 of Nigeria may be slightly different when they play Croatia and they will tailor their starting 11 to fit the opponent in the group stage at least. But if I'm going to name one weakness and not to make it look like these teams don't have weaknesses, Nigeria's biggest weakness is their goalkeeping. Because for the last one year, they've not had a recognized number one. They've had to be shuffling here and there. Some of their goalkeepers have not been consistent at club level. Their first choice is, unfortunately, Carl Ikeme, who I'm sure you know was advised to stop playing football because he had cancer. And also Vincent Inyama, who is in France, but he's in active at club level. So that's the problem, the defense and the goalkeeping. The defense because it's also largely untested in major games even though they've done well in the friendlies and in the qualifiers. It's been a bit start-stop. And we're going to close with Asia. And leading the English-speaking nations out of Asia is Australia. They qualified for the World Cup via a playoff against Honduras. But straight after they qualified, they actually parted ways with their manager, which seems incredible to believe. It was an interesting journey for them. They actually had to qualify via multiple playoffs, one against Syria that saw them play the home leg in Australia and the away leg in Malaysia because Syria could not handle the match because of political ramifications in the area and then playing in Honduras as well. So it was quite the journey for Australia to qualify. To preview the Socceroos, I was joined by David Weiner of Optus Sport in Australia. A country like Australia, much like the US, the World Cup provides a massive foothold into the mainstream hearts and minds in such a busy sporting landscape. So we were walking a tightrope, certainly by coming third to Japan and Saudi Arabia. And those four games really made it a really well-earned qualification because no one in the history of the World Cup 
has travelled more miles or played more games to get there than this Socceroos crop. So much so it took the toll on it. Coach Ange Postacoglu, who walked away at the end of that achievement, but it is an immense point of pride for the country to have us at a fourth consecutive World Cup finals. So that would be surprising, I think, to our listeners. Why would the manager who took Australia to the World Cup for a fourth consecutive World Cup not want to manage the team that he got there? That's a question that probably has been the subject of its own podcast in entirety in Australia. <laughs> but in one in one sentence, besides political tension and off-field issues that uh, he seemingly uh, couldn't shake off as well. I think it was an exhausting, emotional, wrenching roller coaster four-year period for him, and he's now moved over to Yokohama in Japan, the club owned by Manchester City or the, or the City Football Group, to work and return in the meat and drink of club football, away from the intense exposure that um, he got while coach of the national team here. So in a nutshell, I think it was more a mixture of exhaustion and a few differences here and there, perhaps with the Federation, that saw him decide to just move away and and watch the World Cup in the background, which was disappointing to many. And so in terms of the fact that now there's a Dutch manager in, before we get to Bert van Marwijk, am I I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, that's... Well, that's as good as my Dutch is. <laughs> so is it a little bit disappointing to you, though, that an Australian manager wouldn't want to continue in that role and, and take a, a domestic manager take the side to the World Cup? Look, it was immensely disappointing and emotional for Australian football at the time because he was very much a, a leader of the game, not just a coach. He was someone who was quite a vocal spokesman for the game's cause and played in a very ambitious way, tried to get on the front foot play proactive football, dominate the ball, that kind of thing. Not always with great success during qualifying where there wasn't much time to prepare for each game across the globe, but that was what he wanted to do. So after four years of a lot of rhetoric and a lot of build-up towards this sort of end game, saying this was all about the end game of the World Cup, being competitive at the World Cup, this is a squad I'm developing for the World Cup, it was immensely disappointing to many to see that that project wasn't going to be completed. Also complicated because the the manager that's been brought in has a completely 360 degree different philosophy in how it should be played. Nothing wrong with that. Each manager has their own way of thinking. And Bert van Marwijk, who was made a World Cup final with Holland in 2010, of course, against Spain, has basically this three-week period and maybe 10 days in March as well he had with two friendlies to try and prepare the team in a way he thinks will make them competitive. So whilst Postacoglu was very much about front foot football, maybe with a bit of reckless abandon, Van Marwijk has used the template of Atletico Madrid as the way he wants his, his Australian players to set up with a mentality in Russia so that when they come up against France, they're not just naively trying to compete and go toe-to-toe with them, but they're actually make France earn every single thing they do in the game. And perhaps that will mean only a point. So a lot of interesting discussion in Australian football at the moment about the fact that we've gone completely 360 in terms of the way we would have played at the World Cup. But having been in Turkey, where they had their pre-camp down in, in the south in Antalya over the last couple of weeks, he's certainly been trying to add the finishing touches to this squad and and make it battle-hearted and street-smart for uh, the three games in Group C. Tell us about some of the players to watch from this Australia team and and who do you think might impress at this World Cup? Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, the biggest biggest names at the moment at the highest level are the Premier League goalkeeper Matt Ryan from Brighton and Hove Albion. Excellent goalkeeper. Much more mature than he was four years ago when he was thrown in the deep end after Mark Schwartz's retirement. Huddersfield midfielder Aaron Moy is arguably Australia's key player. You know, a player who can compete at any level. It was 
sorry, he's competed at, at, against every club in the, in the Premier League this year. Game breaker, Tom Rogic from Celtic, just signed a five-year deal there. I'm really hopeful this is his stage to do something special and break a game open. And Hertha Berlin winger, Matt Leckie, his speed, you know, he's, he's as good as anyone and he can take on anyone down that flank, be it from France, Denmark or Peru. I'd say they're the, the key five players, all led by Aston Villa's bearded, fearsome midfielder, Mila Yedinak. Is Tim Cahill going to play very much? Tim's going to be there. Tim's still eight years old. Tim doesn't have 90 minutes in him. He will certainly be the player that the country turns to if we need to nick a goal off the bench. And having watched him for many, many years, and, and he has played very little club football in the last year, he's probably made, played more for his country than he has for his club. He still started the second leg of the Syria playoff and scored twice to put Australia through to the Honduras game. So if he comes on, I would not bet against him getting a goal, which would put him in very elite company, just the fourth player to score at four consecutive World Cup finals. All right, so the group is France, Peru, and Denmark. How much hope is there in Australia that this team can make it out? It's going to be fairly difficult. Peru, a South American team with their first World Cup in 36 years. Denmark, a pretty solid side that looked really impressive in qualifying out of their playoff. And then obviously France, who maybe player for player might have the best squad at the tournament. What are the odds, do you think, that that Australia can make it out? Yeah, we would have taken a few of France's uh, omitted 11, that's for sure. But um, (laughs) it is a fair group. You know, we'll talk about in a second someone like Iran, who were the highest seeded Asian group, and look at the group they've got. So yeah. it is a fair group. It is a competitive group. If Australia is good enough, they can make a real fist of it. This is not a team with the caliber of their predecessors, 2006 and even 2010, where Australia got four points uh, in both those group stages. But under no illusion, anyone that knows their football in this country knows that Peru have conquered the most difficult qualifying of all in, in South America and have the fairy tale of 36 years back at the World Cup. And Denmark, are the European pedigree, and, and a player like Tottenham's Christian Eriksen in their squad. But as I said, it is a fair and competitive group, giving Australia an opportunity with the street smarts Van Marvark has armed them with to think that they can go there and give this group a real shake to get through to the next stage. So a prediction from you, David. Does Australia make it out of the group? I'm comfortable enough to say yes. You know, that's a little bit of a, you know, a cheerleading answer. But uh, we're not going into this World Cup feeling like uh, we're going to be lambs to the slaughter. You know, last World Cup we faced Netherlands, Spain and Chile. And uh, we were happy to go there and be gallant losers. Whereas this World Cup, I think the Tide... 4-0 4-0 win against Czech Republic last week. We play Hungary on the weekend. The signs are that they're building towards being very competitive. With that sense, it's enough to go. It's not the most ridiculous proposition to say what we think we can go through. All right, that'll just about do it. If you want to hear the full editions of these World Cup previews, they're available on the Pitch Invasion podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. Again, on Twitter, at Pitch Invasion 5R. We appreciate you listening to this World Cup preview episode of the Five Reasons podcast. We'll be back later in the week with a couple of more episodes, one with Nikias Duncan of Miami Heat Beat, getting back to some NBA chat, and also Rick Buecher of Bleacher Report is going to join us to talk some Warriors as well. So plenty of great stuff coming up this week on the Five Reasons Podcast. Thanks for listening to the World Cup Preview. Again, check it out on Pitch Invasion. That'll do it for us. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.